Hey guys, it's Ellie. Welcome to Minute Mysteries. You're in the right place. So, if you've never been on the podcast before, first of all, welcome to the show. I hope you stick around. So basically what happens here is I have this book called Minute Mysteries. It's by H.A. Ripley, and it's full of, well, Minute Mysteries puzzles. And if you don't know what those are, they're just logic puzzles or scenarios that we're given that kind of test our deductive or logical skills, you know, that sort of thing. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> so every episode, I read three of them. And then after I read each puzzle, I try my hardest to find the solution. And I don't usually because they're super hard. <laughs> um, I have gotten a pretty good amount right though, so, you know, not too bad. <laughs> so yeah, after I have my solution or I have some ideas or I just have no ideas, uh, then I read the solution and we listen to how much I failed together. You know, it's a bonding experience. <laughs> So last week I got uh, zero out of three right, so that's wonderful. <laughs> so like I said, these things are hard, but hopefully we'll do a little bit better this week. So with no more waffle, let's jump right in. A soldier of fortune. You'll find Walter Briggs interesting, Fortney. He's been all over the world, said attorney Hamilton over the phone. He's turned up after two years, claiming his uncle's fortune. Better dine with us tonight. Thanks, I'll be glad to. See you at eight. As the three men sat around the dinner table, Fortney remarked, You're a fortunate chap, Briggs. What have you been doing in the 32 years you've been away from America? Well, lots of things, Mr. Hamilton. No doubt I told you I went to the Congo with father when I was three. When he died, I attended school in England. Then I traveled for a while, did a bit of tiger shooting in Africa, killed elephants in India and became an ivory trader, roaming over the Orient for four or five years. I finally drifted into Russia, where I was a technical advisor to the Soviet. What a jolly life you've had, Briggs. Not altogether, Professor. I was in Manchuria, where life was anything but jolly. And then, being in sympathy with the Chinese, I took an active part in the Sino-Japanese War. It was in China I learned of my uncle's death, so I came to New York immediately. Are you remaining there? Asked Hamilton. No. <laughs> Me for Paris, as soon as things get settled. After a pleasant evening, the three men parted. Reaching home, Fortney hesitated about telephoning Hamilton. After all, it was his duty to advise him to check Briggs' story carefully before turning over the inheritance. As for him, he was frankly skeptical. Are you? Why? <laughs> okay, we have a story about someone claiming someone else's inheritance. So basically the story is that Walter Briggs, who's apparently traveled all over the world and had a crazy life, has come back to America after a long time, presumably, to claim his uncle's fortune. And basically, we need to figure out whether his story is true or not. So we kind of need to double-check things. Fortney is suspicious, which means, you know, there's a hole in the story somewhere. We just need to find it. So let's just kind of go over his story, because he kind of tells the broad strokes of his life story to the professor. And, you know, let's kind of review that and kind of see if there are any holes in the story, you know? So let's see. According to Walter Briggs, he went to the Congo with his dad when he was three. So he was kind of raised in the Congo. And then when his father died, he went to school in England. So I can assume that he was in school in England for a good amount of years. And then after that, he quote unquote traveled for a while, which means he went to Africa and killed tigers, went to India and killed elephants and became an ivory trader, which I mean, whew, triple threat, man. <laughs> and then, you know, he kind of during that time, he kind of roamed over the Orient for four or five years. And then after that, he became a technical advisor to the Soviet. So... Yeah. <laughs> so after that, he goes even further. He says that he was in Manchuria, and he said that, quote, life was anything but jolly. 
He said that while he was there, he took sympathy with the Chinese and had an active part in the Sino-Japanese War, which sounds real exciting. I actually googled that, and the Sino-Japanese War took place from 1894 to 1895. And then it says that when he learned of his uncle's death, he was in China, and then he went straight from China to New York. So there are a couple things that I kind of noticed that were a little bit strange. So most of these are probably just my own uh, small brain confusion, but <laughs> you never know, you know? So I just think it's a little bit strange how like his life is just so crazy. Like he went to the Congo, England, Africa, India, the Orient in general, Russia, you know, Manchuria, China, all these places. And then he's going to Paris after, you know, he's done with this inheritance thing. That's just so crazy. And there's so, there's so much like potential for holes in the story, you know? Part of my confusion is with the timeline, and I feel like I say this every episode, but there's something confusing me about how this all kind of happened chronologically. So there's kind of two sections of his story. First is when he just like goes from beginning to end. He talks about, you know, Congo, then he went to England, then so on and so forth, all the way to when he became a technical advisor to the Soviet in Russia. But then after um, the professor says, what a jolly life you've had, Briggs, then he responds with, in the second part of his story, not altogether, Professor, and then he goes on to talk about Manchuria and the Sino-Japanese War and being in China and stuff. So yeah, those are the two parts. So the first part of his story is when he goes basically chronologically, like from Congo to Russia. And the last sentence of the first part is, quote, I finally drifted into Russia, where I was a technical advisor to the Soviet. So it says, I finally drifted into Russia. That makes it sound like, yeah, that was his final resting place. It makes it sound like he came from Russia to New York. Like it was, it was like the latest thing that he was doing. Uh, but then later he goes on to say that he was in Manchuria, was, you know, sympathied with the Chinese in a war. And then, you know, he was in China when he learned of his uncle's death. So was he in Russia or was he in China? <laughs> because the second part says that he was in China, but the first one makes it seem like Russia was the last place that he was. Saying this out loud, it sounds really stupid and small-brained, but hey, you know, that's me, you know? <laughs> this show is just for me to, like, vomit what I'm thinking of while I read these stories, so yeah, you get to hear the stupid stuff too sometimes. <laughs> okay, uh, let's see. So, wait. So, he said that he was in China when he heard about his father's death, right? Or his uncle's death, yeah. How did he find out about his uncle's death? He was in China. Probably nobody knew where he was, you know? So how did they get the letter to him? I'm just confused about that part. <laughs> I don't think that's solution related. I think it's just my little monkey brain is wigging out right now. <laughs> Another thing is that in the very first part where Fordney is on the phone with the attorney Hamilton and Hamilton's like, bro, this guy's so cool. He's turned up after two years, wanted to claim his uncle's fortune. You should probably come to dinner with us tonight. That confuses me because it says that he, quote, turned up after two years claiming his uncle's fortune. Like, after two years? Does that mean that he hasn't been in the States for two years? Or does that mean that he's, like, been out of contact for two years because either way it doesn't make sense but then later Fordney says to Briggs who's you know the travel guy what have you been doing in the 32 years you've been away from America so that also means that he hasn't been in America for 32 years so I think that uh, the 32 years is when he's been away from America but the attorney Hamilton said how he turned up after two years it sounds like he hasn't been in contact with for two years and so my only confusion is how Walter Briggs was able to find out about his uncle's death when he was in China, presumably, you know? Because, like, from all the wording that we get, it sounds like he hasn't been in contact with his family for at least two years. And so how do they know where he was? <laughs> I'm just confused about that, you know? So anyways, um, one more thing that I kind of noticed 
he mentions both the first Sino-Japanese War, or it's Sino-Japanese, I don't know, one of those, um, which, like I mentioned, took place in 1894 to 1895. And then he also mentions that he was a technical advisor to the Soviet, which was founded in 1922. I'm just confused about the time span between the two. Like, the Sino-Japanese War happened 20 years before the Soviets were even established as a country, you know? Like, that's a pretty big time difference. And according to what we read before, he'd only been away from America for 32 years. If there's at least a 20-year difference between two of the events he talks about, but he's only been away for 32 years, then, like, how do things line up there, chronologically? So, anyways, those are just some of the ideas that I had. Most of them are probably wrong, but let's find out and read the solution together, shall we? Hamilton knew the real Walter Briggs had gone to Africa as a child. So, when this chap said he had shot tigers in Africa, Fortney was very, very skeptical. There are no tigers in Africa. Oh well, look it up yourself. Uh... <laughs> I even googled things. I googled historical events, and I wasn't even close. I could have just googled tigers in Africa. Oh my goodness, I feel so dumb. <laughs> uh, that was the best. Okay, <laughs> wow. Whew, I put in way too much effort into that. Okay, now let's move on to the next puzzle, shall we? Number 26. You fellows must remember that more often than otherwise, the little, seemingly inconsequential trifles placed together lead to the solution of a crime. Never take anything for granted. Examine thoroughly what appear to be the most unimportant details. You didn't do so well with your last lesson, said Professor Fordney, addressing his class. Now, try your wits at this one. I know it sounds fishy, Inspector, continued he, reading from a paper, but I was walking along 16th Street, minding my business. When I gets in front of number 26, I hears a dame scream, Help! Murder! So I dashed up the steps to the house, pushed open the door, and rushed in. As I was halfway through the hall, a big guy steps out of a room and says, Ah there, Mr. Farrell, just in time. I asks him what's going on, and just then three coppers came in and takes me, this guy, and another woman in. Neither one of them would talk to me on the way, so I don't know what it's all about. I'm going around myself, replied the inspector. I'll talk with you when I get back. As Kelly turned the knob at number 26, the door was violently pushed open in his face. Sorry, said Detective Bradford. Just going back to headquarters. Found plenty of dope, all right. Here's something you'll be interested in, showing Kelly a man's hat initialed DF. There are three packets of cocaine under the sweatband. This story is, of course, fictitious said Fortney, putting down the paper. But it illustrates my point. There's just one small, unimportant detail that's wrong. To repeat, you must learn to detect inconsistencies quickly, however insignificant. Quickly now. Do you get it? Oh, I don't know if I get it or not. <laughs> Dude, in the beginning, when uh, Fortney said, you didn't do so well with your last lesson, I felt so called out. <laughs> I was like, Fortney, no, how did you know? <laughs> Uh, anyways, so the framing narrative of this is Professor Fortney teaching his class. He has a criminology class, obviously, and he's telling them about never taking anything for granted and looking for the most inconsequential details. And I actually noticed one. <laughs> I think I think I got on my first try. So here, let, let me explain. So according to this pretend fictitious witness story that Fortney's reading, this guy, who is, you know, perspective it's from, hears a call of murder and runs up to a house numbered 26 and pushes open the door and comes in. So he goes from outside, he pushes the door and he comes inside, right? 
then Inspector Kelly, like, after the, you know, crime is done and everyone's arrested, Inspector Kelly comes back into the house, except the door is pushed open in his face. Which implies that the door swings out, when before, it swung into the house. So, I think that's an inconsistency. Either that, or it's just really weirdly worded, and my mind likes to think things that are not right. <laughs> Which is not an uncommon thing on this show. So yeah, that's my final solution. Um, <laughs> that one did not take long at all, but sometimes I get them quick, and sometimes I have to think a lot about them, so... You know what? It's never the same two weeks in a row. <laughs> but anyways, I'm far too confident in this one solution that I suddenly thought up with, so let's read the solution and see if anything that I said was right. The inconsistency is this. Farrell said he pushed open the door. Yet Bradford, inside the house, pushed the door in Kelly's face as the inspector was entering. If Bradford pushed the door in Kelly's face, Farrell must have pulled the door to open it. Ah, I got it, finally! <laughs> right on the nose, dude. <laughs> I mean, it probably helped that Fortney was literally trying to illustrate to his class the smallest inconsistencies are what make or break a story. So I was looking for small inconsistencies, you know? Without that little reminder at the beginning and end, I probably wouldn't have gotten it. Uh, I was mentally prepared for finding some really small detail that was off, you know? Like, that's what I was prepared for. And I should be mentally prepared to do that for every puzzle, but I'm not, because I'm small-brained, okay? <laughs> so yeah, on to the third and final puzzle for the week. The Pullman Car Murder. Tell your story to Professor Fordney said the superintendent, introducing the conductor. Well, said Jackson, last night, just after we left Albany, Lower 8 let out a terrifying shriek. I was standing at one end of the car, the maid, porter, and brakeman at the other end. We met at the berth as Briggs was gasping from a knife wound in the heart. I immediately had both doors of the car guarded, as well as the doors to the washrooms. Every berth was occupied, and by this time the passengers were milling around in the aisle. I began to look for the missing knife with which Briggs had been killed, Every passenger, even the maid, brakeman, and porter, every inch of the car and all baggage were searched. But still, we failed to find it. The window sills were covered with freshly fallen snow, and an examination proved that none of them had been opened. No one had left the car, and no one had entered either washroom. I knew the knife must be in the car. But where? Washington, our old porter, really discovered the murderer's identity by, quote, scrutinizing them all. I know your reputation, Professor, so you will probably have little difficulty in determining how Washington located the assassin, but I bet you can't tell me where I found the knife. Jackson's face fell, as Fortney quickly replied, As there is only one possible place it could have been, you found it. How long did it take you to discover the knife? Oh man, um, forever, I guess? <laughs> I don't have any ideas as of yet. Well, the problem is, if you're clever enough, you could hide a knife anywhere and still get away with it. Like, if you have a couple of people working together, you could, like, pass the knife between yourselves while you're each getting searched or something, and then totally escape being searched. However, according to this, there's only one spot where it could have been hidden. And according to the wording, it sounds like the knife didn't move. Like, they just talked about the knife's hiding place. They didn't talk about who had the knife or something like that. So, I'm just going to be thinking about it in terms of where it could have permanently hidden instead of who could have held it and who could have given it to who and whatever, you know? <laughs> I'm trying to remind myself to not overthink this. So yeah, this question is actually really vague. It just says like, oh, where's the knife? But like, it could be anywhere. Like, there's so many hiding places. They could have hidden it like in the seats and they could have hidden it in the washroom. They could have hidden it like, 
I don't know, in an infinite amount of places if they have the right tools to get into them, right? You can't only hide things on your person or in your baggage, you know? Like, there are more hiding places, specifically, like, on the train that they could have used. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it does say that, quote, every inch of the train was searched, which, I mean, would probably rule out some of the hiding places that are just, like, on the train somewhere. Like, like I said, like, under the seat cushions and stuff like that. But, I don't know. <laughs> this is really vague. I'm just gonna go with the ideas that I've already thrown out. So, yeah, let's just read the solution and see if anything that I threw at the wall stuck. Every piece of baggage had been examined and every inch of the car inspected. All passengers, even the maid, porter, and brakeman had been searched. The knife was still in the car. Remember? There was nothing said about the conductor being searched. The knife was found in his pocket. Dude, oh, that makes so much sense. <laughs> they missed one. <laughs> yeah, I guess, like, they never did search him, you know? <laughs> it's one of those classic stories where the person who reports the crime or who gets the private detective or who calls the cops is actually the one who perpetrated the crime. And by calling the cops or getting a detective, they're trying to deflect the blame off themselves, you know? Man, I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> I actually totally forgot that the person who was speaking even was the conductor. I'm just stupid and didn't look at the first sentence again where it says that he's a conductor, you know? Oh my goodness, jeez. <laughs> but hey, I got one right. Which is one more than last episode, so I am beyond satisfied, honestly. <laughs> so yeah, that was an enjoyable episode. I may not have done well, but I did better than last week, and that's all that I can ask for. <laughs> and sometimes I can't even ask for that because I'm just bad at these sometimes. Anyways... So, if you want to read along next episode, then you can. There's a, I forgot to mention this before, but uh, the book that I'm reading out of should be linked in the show notes. So, if you want to read along and solve the puzzles before me, feel free. <laughs> so, just a couple of things I want to mention. First of all, I have an email address. If you want to send me any feedback or comments or recommendations especially, then email me at classicmysteriespod at gmail.com. It's also in the show notes. Also, obviously, you're on the Classic Mysteries podcast feed, right? But this show is called Minute Mysteries, so, hmm, how weird is that, right? <laughs> so this is just the little sub-series that I do every week. My main episodes release on Mondays, and they're obviously called Classic Mysteries. And basically the premise is that I just read old mystery books, and I comment on them, and it's a fun time, and, and, and I think it's fun all around, you know? Kind of making fun of the weirdness and the absurdity of old books, and also just enjoying the plots. Like, right now, I'm actually reading an Agatha Christie story, and the finishing part of that will drop next Monday, and I'm actually very excited for it because it's a great story. <laughs> so yeah, if you want to listen to that, also something I did recently was a two-parter Sherlock Holmes called The Musgrave Ritual, and that was really cool. You know, I hadn't read it before, and so it was really enjoyable to read it with you guys on the podcast and <laughs> be able to share my thoughts on how weird the story gets, you know? <laughs> like, things kind of, I wouldn't say devolve, but they definitely evolve by the end, you know? They definitely change into something else, you know? But anyways, so yeah, if you ever wanted to listen to my main podcast, I'd appreciate that. If you kind of enjoyed what you got here, obviously there are a lot more Minute Mysteries backlogs you could listen to, but mostly I just hope that you have a great week and stick around the podcast and continue to enjoy this subpar mystery content. <laughs> anyways, I had a great week this week and I hope that you guys have a delightful week as well. Hasta la vista. <laughs>